Hello, this is Rusty Reno at First Things Magazine. Welcome to the next edition of the Editor's Desk, our regular podcast where we look at uh, and talk to authors of recent articles in First Things Magazine. And, you know, if you're not a subscriber, dear listener, well, all I can say is, you know, don't be among the losers. You've got to be a subscriber to First Things Magazine, firstthings.com. Run, don't walk firstthings.com and subscribe. I have with me Christopher Caldwell, a contributing editor to the Claremont Review of Books and author most recently of The Age of Entitlement. And he's here to talk to me about his recent article on the fateful 90s. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Great to be here, Rusty. You know, uh, the 90s uh, is a, as you argue, a defining decade. It's funny, you know, in the, in the, most people say, oh no, it's the Reagan revolution. That's the defining uh, moment. Uh, There's got to be some truth to that. And certainly we look back on the 1960s and appropriately see this as a transformative decade. But why, do you have any thoughts on why you would say that the that the 80s, I mean, every decade has consequential events. But why, why would you argue that the 90s really is a more pivotal moment? Well, it, it was, it, it's, it's, very, it's not very typical of important decades in one respect. Um, there's a saying, Milton Friedman once said that, that, um, that most change comes about in, in periods of crisis, and it, and it tends to it tends to use, uh, when you need change, you tend to use the ideas that are lying around, you know? So like Franklin Roosevelt probably had no kind of economic theory, but in the crisis of the Depression, he was aware that a certain way of doing things was not working. And it turned out that these bright young things at Harvard had these ideas, Keynesian ideas about running the country. And he said, well, let's try that. That's right. And in fact, that's, that's, um, there are a lot of examples of this. I mean, Jean Monnet, you know, one of the, the, the founders of the, of the, of the European Union uh, said that, you know, the European Union will be forged in crisis and, and, and its institutions will be the sum of the, of the solutions to these crises. But the, the 1990s were not like that. The 1990s, they were a time when America was really feeling pretty good about itself and not under a great deal of pressure. People talk about defining decades. Obviously, in the American experience, 1932 to 1945, without doubt, the defining decade of the 20th century, uh, the crisis of the Great Depression, and then really total mobilization of our society to triumph in World War II. And then I often think you know, John Kennedy's assassination, 1963, to the withdrawal of troops from Vietnam in 1973. Uh, the 60s is a kind of funny decade. It doesn't really start according to the calendar. Uh, and that, you know, certainly riots, uh, assassinations. People often, my friends, young friends, they're very concerned about polarization. And I say, well, you know, the 60s was pretty bad in terms of social unrest. But then we look at the 90s, and your argument is that 
fall of the Berlin Wall, November 1989 to 9-11, September of 2001, marks an, a, also another decisive decade, and you pursue this on many fronts. So what, what, what is distinctive about the 1990s? Because I think most people look back and all they think of is that those were the good old days. Yeah, it was, well, it was decisive in a different way. Most of these other decades owe their influence to a lot of crises and the, uh, the very pragmatic solutions that were found to those crises. That's what the, the New Deal is a bunch of programs that are, were, were like thrown in, 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 in great desperation at the problems of the, of the, uh, of the Great Depression. And the military-industrial complex is a system that was found to be um, most efficient in the heat of World War II. Um, but there was no crisis in, 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 in the early 1990s. We had triumphed abroad and we triumphed abroad in a kind of a funny way. We had we'd eliminated the Soviet threat, but we'd done so because our ideas had triumphed. So we, the whole entire world was looking to us to set rules for a new order. And we did it. But we did it kind of without any practical pressure on us at all. So the, the, world, the rules for the world order that we came up with um, turned out to be incredibly utopian and incredibly impractical if you look at the you know i mean you can i don't mention this in my in my um article but to 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 mention one instance that is sort of like occupying the world today our global migration regime is something that really doesn't seem to fit the the needs of any country but it's got it's it's built on an idea of human rights that really flourished in the you know in the uh, you know in a lot of um, uh, transnational conferences and um, and and think tank gatherings in the 1990s and and now we have it and and a lot of the world is like that now. Maybe you could say it was a crisis of limitless possibility, <laughs> which presents its own kind of crisis when when one has the illusion that one has limited, unlimited power. It's a kind of, now what can I do? Hegel calls negative infinity. Right. Uh, it certainly felt like that, I think. Uh, you, you, one of the areas, and it's the most obvious, I'm sure, as you said, the triumph of, it's hard to use the word triumph, but the collapse of the Soviet Union gave the feeling that free market principles had triumphed. And you cite this marvelous um, uh, uh, speech that um, James Buchanan, the uh, uh, economist, and uh, kind of a, uh, he's one of the founders of game theory and, and so on. So uh, uh, public choice, public choice theory. theory. Yeah. Uh, he gave in Australia that, I mean, you, you pick it apart in a really brilliant way about how it, theoretically the market is the most efficient way certainly to organize economic affairs and to a certain extent almost all human relations. He might not say every single human relation, but most human relations are best 
organized according to market principles. Yeah, and it did, and it, and it did triumph in just the way he said. Um, everyone was convinced that this was the best way to allocate goods. But the point that he made, um, the point that he made in this speech, and this is what makes it so interesting, he was trying to show just how strong the case for the market is, and he did. But it's a very self-contained case. And he said the market is really good, but the, what makes it good is that it receives absolutely no interference from from outside. And as soon as it starts to receive interference from outside, it's distorted and it doesn't work. So what he's saying is it's not just communism. You can't have, you know, you can't have tradition or religion or, or um, custom or anything. It, it's going to be... It, if you're going to have the market, you're going to have the market, and it's it. So, so yes, it does work, but it's but it works only as long as you allow the machine to run out of control, which no one will do, no one wants. You know. What I was thinking when I was reading that is that, you know, when I was a college student, and you would point out to actually existing socialism and its fact that it doesn't work very well at producing material well-being. The counter argument would always be that, well, it's not going to work until it's universally adopted. And in the 90s, we kind of flipped it. And capitalism, the argument was, well, you know, we got trade imbalances and so on. Well, and, you know, once the Chinese really adopt free market principles, the market will sort all this stuff out. And so there was a, a kind of imperialist quality to market thinking. It intrinsically demanded universalization in order to in order to fulfill the promise that Buchanan lays out for it. Uh, I, I think I see what you mean, and, and and those 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 arguments actually began to come in in the late '70s and even in the '80s too, where 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 people said, you know, we're willing to trade, but but other people are dumping. Um, they're dumping because they're you know they're um, the government is topping off mm -hmm. workers' wages or something like that, and so we can't trade with these people. And so, yeah, I, I think there's always going to be, until there's a world government, there's going to be a sense that 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 other countries are cheating at the at the international economic game. You know, part of the Cold War strategy, or if you will, settlement, was that uh, the our allies would get economic access to America on advantageous terms. And it's interesting the way that we moved into the 90s and established the WTO and other instruments of the global economic uh, system. But we kind of retained that Cold War uh, presumption uh, and it was repackaged as necessary in order to draw China into the global economic system, which would inevitably make them more like us. And I remember Michael Novak certainly published in First Things arguments that it would lead to liberal democracy in China. Uh, and that, those chickens seem to have come home to roost. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have the populism is to a certain extent... Uh, a, a rebellion against a kind of trading of, of uh, American competitive advantage for the sake of American global leadership. That's one way of looking at it. I mean, that is the geostrategic focus on it. But in a, um, 
in a more domestic economic sense, it basically allowed um, American, you know, offshoring allowed American, you know, company owners, including the people who own stock, to make higher profits by contracting their labor out to countries that didn't regulate labor and 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 could do it for a fraction of the American worker, what the American worker did it for. So it was a it was a massive redistribution of um, of wealth from from the bottom to the top. And uh, and and one thing that worked very similarly is um, is immigration, where um, immigration saved a lot of money for the people who hired immigrants, and it, and it cost a lot of money to the people who competed with immigrants. So there was a very, very steady upward redistribution of both wealth and income um, in the United States. And that's the, I mean, that's not all that populism is about because populism has a, populists tend to have the view that these things happened for cultural reasons and, 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 and that kind of thing. But it's a pretty good it gives you a pretty good outline of the of the the fault lines in in in, in this populist elitist sort of polarization. You can see with the repeal of Glass Steagall, which is also a Clinton uh, late in the Clinton administration, as I recall, that as we globalized as the system global system, there was a very big concern that the American banks be able to because uh, Ger- Europeans have especially Germans and. And uh, they have these. They have huge. They have only a few huge banks, and I remember the argument at the time is that we needed to have um, financial institutions that were capable of competing at a global level. So they had to have, you know, 10x as much depositor capital, and and you know, that was not false. I mean, it did turn out that Wall Street was able to um, ride. The wave of globalization to even greater heights and even more dominance than it, it possessed beforehand. But to your point, that's just another example of a kind of rewriting of the social contract, which I don't think either the people who did the rewriting or the people who endured the new social contract were aware that that's what they were doing. Do you think that they knew they were doing it? I mean, the Clinton, the Clinton era rhetoric was always win-win. Yes, about everything. Um, well, look, individual individual business owners certainly knew that they were doing it. Um, the politicians um, reacted to pressure from their from their donors, um, and probably the donors were not saying we have a great scheme to put a lot of money in our pockets. The donors probably said to the politicians, "There's a lot of injustice in the world in the way that we can't move our capital to you know." I'm just trying to make money for the United States and no one's letting me move to Malaysia and open a factory, you know? So I I think the individual, the individual business owners knew that they were doing this to maximizing, maximize profit and um, probably didn't care as much as they should that they had what Larry Summers used to call implicit contracts with those who, who, who worked for them. Um, but you know, when Larry Summers was in the Clinton 
administration, he probably realized that, that there was an element of that going on. So I don't think it's a, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I, I, I'm not out to, to, to cast blame. I, but I, but I, you know, I think that probably there was some awareness that this was going on. Well, okay. Let me, let me, let me play. I mean, you also talk about the way in which the Clinton administration, um, you know, uh, both the vice president, Al Gore and the president, but especially Al Gore, uh, were really fired up about the the new potential of the um, of technology and the computer age, and so as I see it, there were three things that were laid down in the '90s. There was the laying down the foundations of economic globalization, and that means trade and free movement of capital. There was the transformation of our banking laws to allow. Um, Wall Street to be the dominant player globally and not just nationally. And then there were changes in our intellectual property laws and other things that really allowed the tech industry to, to become a very profitable um, uh, s uh, sector of our society. Okay, those three things. They're, so they were all dr profound revisions of an economy and an implicit re... I mean, NAFTA you could throw in along with the WTO. But let's look at this. All right, so BlackRock. We, I mean, they promised a certain outcome, and they delivered. We did get global dominance in the financial system, which is why uh, the government was able to use all these sanctions against Russia. One can argue that they're not effective and they're imprudent, but, you know, that, that couldn't be done to the Soviet Union, um, you know. And I think uh, we do have leverage over China, and that China has to be very careful. It's not clear that it could survive economically if it was cut off from the United States. Yeah. And then we have Apple, Google, you know, the kind of these tech behemoths uh, that really do dominate uh, the technological landscape uh, um, globally. Um, so, you know, I, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was saying that, you know, uh, like, who are the agents of, of kind of globalist mentality that's very much a problem? You know, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Wall Street. And he, he was saying, we've got to destroy them. And I said, be careful about destroying the goose that lays the golden egg. <laughs> so I guess I'm trying to sort of... So, so anyway, that's my sense that that's what they were thinking they would achieve. But they they... They refused or they told themselves all kinds of stories about how coal miners were going to learn how to code and, you know, yeah. whatever, the, yeah, yeah. you know, all those sorts of things. Everybody's, Clinton, in Clinton administrations, when we first got the, the solution to this is everybody's going to go to college. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, I know, but I, I and, and, and a lot of people still think that. I, I think that our global dominance um, rests on... Um, the reserve currency and our control over a, a number of institutions like, um, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, the, the, the um, um, and other bureaucratic institutions and, um, you know, sort of technological institutions like SWIFT, the transfer system. And, and if, if Russia had been able to stay out of the global economy and to prosper as a, as an autarkic community, which it, you know, which it's, 
which we've tried to give it another opportunity to do, (laughs) if it it had been able to stay out of those institutions, then we would indeed have no leverage over them. Um, We did have a bit of leverage over Russia um, during the Cold War. We tried to gain it through trade and we got it through wheat. We were trading, you know, wheat. We were uh, were trading grain, a lot of grain to to Russia. So you think it's... uh... You think it's the legacy? These are the all the institutions you mentioned are legacies of our of our po- post-war era. Yes, I think it comes from. Um, I think it comes from our, our hard economic power comes from these legacy institutions. I do think that that trade gives us leverage too, but it's a it's a two-way leverage. I mean, of course, China needs our demand, but man, do we need their supply. I would, I would hate to see what the United States economy would look like without, without China, trade with China. And I don't, and, and, and then to what you say about the goose that lays the golden egg, it's a, it's an interesting thing. This is the, this is the downside of our global dominance. I think it was striking during the Trump administration, when you had an interesting convergence between the Trump, uh, the Trump um, uh, Commerce Department's sort of anti-trade rhetoric and its anti-Google and anti-high-tech rhetoric and the regulatory impulses of the European Union. But whenever the Trump administration met with the European Union, nothing ever got done. Why didn't anything ever get done? And I think it's because as the Trump administration went on, um, I think they, they began to realize that this is pretty much all we've got. This is our economy, this, yes. this high-tech stuff. And um, so it's what we're stuck with. So yes, we have, we, have a, we have a lot of leverage over the world, but the world has a lot of leverage over us too. Another theme, reinventing government, big Clinton theme. What, what does reinventing government mean in the 1990s? This, to me, was one of the real beautiful discoveries about the 1990s. As I went back and and read this book by two, um, it was a book by two sort of policy intellectuals um, who were were working in California that became kind of the Bible of, um, of the Clinton administration. Clinton and Gore had always presented reinventing government as, well, let's just make government more efficient. You know, it seemed to be kind of at one with the sort of, um, you know, well, it's just sort of like the, the general, generalized Reaganite suspicion of, of government. The reinventing government was actually meant to, yes, stream, streamline government a bit, but streamline it in the interest of making it more efficient and powerful. The idea of reinventing government was to run government more like a business, to make it more ruthless, and the most important thing is less accountable. Because basically, the thing that slowed government down and kept it from being lean and mean is that it was answerable to the voters. And so government became much more entrepreneurial. When Bill Clinton said, the era of big government is over, he meant it only in the sense that government no longer had to be really big to be really powerful. You gave this great story about I don't know whether it's a Sacramento city manager who plunks down 
couple hundred thousand dollars to buy a pool under nobody's authority. And that becomes the, that becomes, he becomes the, the hero of this story of reinventing government. I don't, yeah, I don't think it was, I don't think it was Sacramento, but, but it was, uh, it was a, a city that had a, a, a city. Yeah. Yeah. He had discovered that. Um, he had a deal and it had to be done in the next 48 hours. After the 1984 Olympics was, was selling their Olympic swimming pool at a, at a cut rate um, price. And he went down and said if his school could bid for it, and it it wound up being kind of like a, like a, kind of like a, an auction. And and the guy said, I got four people interested in it. You got to show me the money tonight. You know, and <laughs> and, and, and you know, he, there wasn't time to to schedule a vote on it or to go through any regular budgeting. And so he went back and he got a lady to cut him a check. Had no authority to do it, but. But that became that's an emblem of, and you give the example of uh, the 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 powerful ratchet that kept turning to uh, limit uh, tobacco and cigarettes, um, and and this was the era when you get consent decrees and these new methods of basically, um, you know, the government compelling uh, private actors actually to to implement these changes. I do think it's a very American thing, which is that uh, unlike Europe, where people sort of expect the government to do things, Americans are anti-government, so we tend to, if we want something done for the common good, we impose it as an obligation for private corporations to do, like provide health care, retirement benefits, and, uh, and, and for that matter, um, civil rights, which you talk about. There's a lot of uh, uh, using of the law to have private actors do the enforcement. And that is a more efficient. It's more efficient in the sense that fewer, There's le you point out that government expenditure fell to the lowest level since the 1970s during the Clinton administration. But through these techniques, the actual control over everyday life increased. That's right. So people's feeling that they were under the thumb of some bureaucrat, even if the bureaucrat was actually uh, more remote, was quite real. Yeah, I mean, well, a good, a good an, um, example would be, you know, if you look at the way we wage wars nowadays, um, you know, there was all this, people talk about the United States being a really militaristic uh, country, and, and you might say, but come on, I mean, our, 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 our army has shrunk really since the since the cold war but there are a lot of private contractors who do things you know uh, mm. uh with you know like that's what you know um blackwater and all these sort of like suppliers and logistic companies and the the food companies so all of this is being done by you know private you know, you know public private partnerships whereas the you know the army now is a much more heavily concentrated in, 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 on, on fighting, you see? So we have, um, there, are fewer, there are fewer guys who go into the army today to cook and to, and to, to cut people's hair, you know, that kind right, of thing. Right, right. Uh, another theme, uh, and this, I guess it's kind of hard for me to characterize it. I would put it as the trying to manage, and Clinton was a genius at this, at managing the transformation of the Democratic Party. That 
you know, the Democratic Party went in 1968 from a union working class party to the, by the time you get to the 90s, Bill Clinton, I think, was emblematic of this. It was a new class party. Uh, it really culminated probably in, I think, Barack Obama in 2008 was the first Democrat to win the majority of the vote for people who made more than $200,000 a year. And, and Clinton was at the sort of, the 90s was the time when that was accelerating, that transformation. And so, it was, so Clinton had to adopt these strategies to try to keep the old coalition, or at least build, try to, how do you, how do you sort of white progressives replaced, white college-educated progressives replaced uh, working you know, union member, white union members. And, yeah. and Clinton had to, he had to keep the, keep the band together. Right, it can't be like the Beatles and split up. Otherwise, you're going to lose elections. Well, but 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 what's happening is that the, you know, you have a coalition and um, one one part is growing and the other part is atrophying. I mean, they're just, it's not as if there were a lot of people who, I suppose there were people who changed their minds, but the but the size of these coalitions was was shifting. You see, you see like in in 1955, you know, a very large percentage of the American economy was manufacturing and a very large percentage of the manufacturing uh, uh, labor force was unionized. And so there were a lot of, you know, men who raised families and they largely voted, they almost all voted democratic, you know, it was a really democratic block. Um, and at the same time, how many universities were there in the United States? Not as many as there were today, and many of them were sleepy little places with eight or 12 faculty members. So what's a university? How many people is that employing? When you get to 1995, um, the manufacturing sector has just atrophied. These people who were the backbone of the party, they just no longer exist. Mm. And the education um uh, industry. It's true today. I don't know if it, I think it was true by 1995. Even by 1995, there were more people employed in education, in higher education, than were employed in agriculture. So this is a, like a major vote base, and they, they want different things. But there's a second thing that happened, which is as we offshored um, heavy industry, um, we didn't get poor. That's because we had new industries, and these were thinking industries. So the center of the, let's just say the 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 red hot core of the American economy moved from factories to university towns. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, MIT or Stanford is where the big money was being generated. You know, not in some smokestack, you know, uh, industry in in Toledo. Yeah, I think the 90s was when, because I was living in Nebraska at the time, the 90s was when the those concerned with economic redevelopment all said that the universities are the, we need a university, we need to have startups around our state university. That was the model of economic redevelopment. Yeah, and in what, what the, those were a lot of people who were mistaking correlation for causation, probably. <laughs> but you, you delve into the way in which the... 90s were a paradoxical time. It was a time of really very placid race relations, and this in spite of the Rodney King 1994 
in the subsequent. Uh, 1992, and 90s. that makes a difference. Huh. The beginning of the 90s was very rocky. I mean, you just, you know, there was crack. There was, there was the, there were a lot of ugly scenes. There was the Crown Heights riots. Um, there was the, uh, there was the Rodney King riots. It was, the country was very tense in like 1990. But then the combination of, it's it's quite possible that Clinton did something right, you know, in in mm-hmm. in ninety three when he came to power, but uh, um, but you also had a lot of you had a prosperity that tended to, I don't know, uh, calm a lot of um, tensions, but I think I, I think it was it was a period of tension followed by a pe- pe- period of relative harmony. As I read your this discussion of affirmative action and other things, you say that the 90s was when the Civil Rights Project really took. Yes. It really got institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. And I see it as, uh, as Clinton's ability to both, you know, preserve his coalition of the excluded, the coalition of the excluded is what I think of it as, uh, with the people who are actually at the prosperous center um, you know, the, as we've just, we, you've thought of them as the sort of paradigmatically the university as the kind of emblem of this new um, folks who, who do very, very well in the global economy. And there's a kind of quid pro quo. You know, you support this 90s project of globalizing the American economy, transforming the social contract, and we will double down on uh, protecting you and advancing you. Is that fair characterization? Uh, I don't know how conscious it was, but I do remember in the '90s having a sense that that underneath the prosperity, um, a lot of the cultural rules of the country were being changed, and that that the changes might not be very well viewed when we stopped being quite as prosperous as we were. I mm. mean, things like you know, gay marriage, you know. Um, uh, adoption by single mothers. I mean, a lot of the rules of, let's say, family formation were being were being changed. And families are good in any um, in any context, but but they're desperately important when you have a. They're relatively more important in 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 bad times. People. There's people pay less attention to things like family structure in in good times. So I guess we're back to the crisis of limitless power and the feeling that you can do anything. Uh, Another area, final area, uh, what I call as the fusion of domestic and foreign policy, not in detail, but I guess in the imagination. Uh, you, You give this wonderful... A point about when Clinton made a speech about his um, bombing of Serbia uh, in the Yugoslavian crisis. He gave it at the American Federation for State, County, and Municipal Employees meeting. So here you have the paradigmatic domestic scene talking to the union guys, and he's talking about using that as an occasion because he saw, and you quote from the speech, that he saw the global situation as a macrocosm of the American microcosm. Yes. That we, he, we had successfully built a multicultural nation 
and we need to be missionaries to the world to help them overcome their ethnocentrism and embrace the multicultural future. That's right. And, and he saw it as a, as a Southern liberal with a, with a very, I don't know, mainstream American um, view on a very peculiarly American problem. Um, he had a very, I, I mean, he treated every problem as if it were a, 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 a version of, you know, American social problems, pre preeminent among them, you know, racism and, and Jim Crow. And it's just a very, and then and on top of that, he had a tendency to treat these problems as if they were problems of not being nice. And I guess that's what I mean about about uh, uh, laying down rules and, 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 and setting principles in a period when there's not a, a lot of pressure, you know. I mean, Clinton just did not understand why Serbia could not work like Arkansas, you know, why Serbia, at, in, you know, at the turn of the new millennium could not be like Arkansas in 1963. Um, and, and one of the reasons is, is that the, the, the two faced absolutely different problems. They had absolutely different peoples, they had absolutely different histories. And Clinton really didn't have much curiosity about that. You know, I mean, very specifically, I mean, when you... Clinton said at one point, vaguely, that we had to go into um, Yugoslavia and fight a war there because World War I had started, started in Sarajevo. But how had World War I started in Sarajevo? It basically started when outside powers came in and issued ultimatums to, to one another, just as Clinton did in, 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 in 1999. It was an incredibly risky thing over very small, you know, over very small stakes that he did in, 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 in the Balkans. And in retrospect, we were lucky to get out of it with, you know, as at low a cost as we did. It's interesting that, because, you know, Obama, I think, was even more so. I mean, his second inaugural, I think, he said that the world does not envy us from our, for our wealth and power. It envies, envies us for our diversity. And yeah. so there was a kind of projection of the social project launched in the, in the 90s, really in earnest, uh, yeah. onto the whole world. Um, I, and also, I think that there's a kind of Ivy League way of dealing with disorder. You know, the student radicals, they occupy the president's office. The president express, expresses sympathy for their concerns. He sends pizza. He tells the police to back off. He lets things calm down. Eventually, the students uh, run out of gas and, and they leave. And then you start a new program that meets, in, at least nominally, the students' concerns. And we've, we've developed this as a basic strategy of our foreign policy. But, you know, I think Obama, yes, I do think Obama did inherit a lot of these instincts from from Clinton. Um, and I, I think that the invasion of Libya by Obama and, uh, and Nicolas Sarkozy and David Cameron um, uh, and NATO uh, in 2011 is really a, is turning out to be a calamity for Europe as large as the 
as large as the Iraq war. I mean, it really has changed the entire, it's, it, it, it's made Europe very insecure on its southern flank and it's creating a, a massive migration crisis that's showing, showed no sign of, of stopping. It's really, it may be the main legacy of Barack Obama, that invasion. Um, but I, I, I will say that I think that, that Obama showed a, showed an instinct um, for skepticism of Amer American ad adventurism. He was the first president to actually, you know, you remember he came into, he, he was a, he became a viable presidential candidate, largely because he was skeptical about Iraq. And he showed a similar skepticism about American adventurism in office. You remember, there was probably nothing in foreign policy that it was more heavily criticized for than refusing to go to war with Syria over allegations that they had used chemical weapons. In retrospect, I think most Americans are very glad he didn't. So he had, Obama deserves a lot of credit for, for, for certain instincts that he developed, but I think they were a lot better at, in the latter part of his, um, uh, of his uh, eight years than they were in the, in, in the first part. I'd like to sort of conclude with your very evocative, uh, your evocative conclusions. You write, America's discovery of world dominance might turn out to be the 21st century equivalent to what to Spain's discovery of, of gold had been in the 16th, a source of destabilization and decline disguised as a windfall. Any elaborations on that? I, I, I don't know. I think that the, the decline of... Um... Of the of the of the Spanish Empire is a, a, an elaboration all in itself. So that that would support this notion that the crisis is one of a sudden windfall that feels like there are no limits to what you can do, and then you embark on projects that, when things go sour, you can't back your car up. You're kind of stuck with, you know, as you point out with China, we're kind of stuck with the global system and our embeddedness in it. I think so. I think that's a good way of putting it. Well, here's hoping that the times don't get so bad so quickly that we suffer uh, destabilization, destabilization and decline, at least not too quickly. <laughs> Thanks for this great piece. I really enjoyed talking about it. Thank you, Rusty.